This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hi, this is Carrie Woodruff, Assistant Professor Lecturer at the Department of Nutrition and Integrative Physiology at the University of Utah. I'm also a sports dietitian credentialed with the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And today we'll be picking up with part two in our wilderness nutrition segment. So we've talked about looking at our overall energy needs. We've talked about how to estimate our fluid needs and come up with a plan for consuming sufficient carbohydrate. And now we'll pick up with looking at the other macronutrients of protein and fat. We'll talk a little bit about energy density, and then we'll conclude with looking at the risk of refeeding syndrome. So protein, when I talk about protein, a lot of individuals automatically think about muscle and certainly protein is essential to help to build muscle and to repair tissue. Protein's also essential for our immune system. It's important for fluid balance regulation. So there are a lot of functions in the body. Now the, the recommended amount of protein that a sedentary individual should be consuming is around 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. To find your weight in kilograms, you divide your weight in pounds by 2.2. So if I weighed 50 kilograms, the recommended amount of protein for me would be around 40 grams of protein a day. But we know for athletes and individuals who are going to be active, which includes individuals heading out to the wilderness, our protein needs are going to be higher. So we can correlate this to the protein needs of athletes. If you think about someone who's going to be um, going out for a long run, then their protein needs are going to be more like 1.2 to 1.5 grams of protein for every kilogram of body weight. And ultra endurance runners, someone who's going out for several hours for intense exercise is going to be wanting consuming slightly more of around 1.5 up to 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight to help to maintain their lean body mass and preserve that. Protein consumption is not as important before or during exercise, though certainly consuming a little bit of protein before um, in a meal that you would eat before you head out into the wilderness can certainly help um, with satiety and how full we feel. Um, Protein can be included in the foods that we're consuming during our workout keeping in mind we want to be prioritizing carbohydrate, but maybe we have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Maybe we have a granola bar that has some protein. And as long as the protein amount isn't too high, it's probably not going to cause any um, GI upset or any stomach issues. Um, Where protein really shines in its role is looking at our ability to recover from our intense exercise. So we want to look at getting sufficient protein afterwards. So if you're coming off the mountain and you've just engaged in pretty rigorous exercise, um, the goal is to try and consume 20 to 30 grams of high quality protein, high quality protein um, coming from foods like eggs and um, uh, lean meats come from dairy products and soy products, um, even nuts and seeds, legumes will give our body protein. Consuming 20 to 30 grams of protein within an hour to help that recovery process. And then if we have another meal and another couple hours after that, consuming another 20 to 30 grams is going to optimize our ability to recover from that workout. 
So protein is good. We don't need large amounts before and during exercise, but having some protein after an exercise is a great idea. If you're holding out into the wilderness for several days, just looking at the types of meals that you'll be consuming at dinners and breakfast to make sure there's there are good protein sources included in those. Um, thinking about tuna packets or salmon packets are great ways to bring protein with you out into the wilderness. Other dehydrated meats can be good sources. Um, you can even get dehydrated eggs to bring out with you for breakfast options. Kodiak cake now makes a higher protein pancake mix that you can take with you. So just thinking about the meals that you'll be eating out in the wilderness and looking for good protein sources to have with those meals that are going to be portable. But many of the dehydrated meals that you'll find that are available for being out in overnight um, stints out in the wilderness typically have um, good sources of protein. Then we can think about our snacks of trail mix, nuts and seeds, nut butters are all going to be great protein sources as well. Now fats. Um, fat I think has a, a horrible name in the sense that a lot of people assume if we eat fat it's going to make us fat and luckily we know that fat is an essential and important nutrient. I say luckily because fat also provides us with a lot of flavor and um, can really enhance the taste of food. We just like to focus on the healthy sources of fats. These are the mono and the polyunsaturated fats. Thinking of foods like vegetable oils, olive oil, um, avocado, nuts and seeds, and fish are great sources of omega-3 fatty acids, an essential fat that helps to prevent fatty acid deficiencies and helps our body's um, response to any source of inflammation. So fats are important. Um, having a moderate intake of fat is probably the best approach. If you think about the total amount of calories that you consume, um, around 20 to 35% of our total calories should be coming from those healthy sources of fats. The less than healthy sources of fats, things that include saturated fats or trans fats. Um, we don't necessarily need to avoid those foods at all costs. We just want to try and focus more on the healthy sources of fats. And this also brings up the concept of nutrient and energy density. So when we think about energy density, we think about foods that are high in energy or calories. And fats, because they have nine calories per gram compared with only four calories per gram of protein and carbohydrate, fats are going to be a very energy dense food. And when we're having to carry all of our food with us, we like foods that can store a large amount of energy in small packages. And that's going to require us to have some amounts of fats in those foods to help to increase the energy density. So things that will have um, that are cooked in oils or foods, um, trail mixes that include nuts and seeds, these are all going to include healthy sources of fats that help them to contain more energy in a smaller space. Now, some foods can be very energy dense, but have a very low nutrient quality. And that means that they're not nutrient dense. Think of potato chips or french fries. We can also have foods that are very nutrient dense. That is, they have a lot of nutrients per um, gram. And so if you think about kale or other superfoods, so to speak, fruits and vegetables in general are very nutrient dense. Now, a food can be very nutrient dense, but low in energy. Again, fruits and vegetables. 
The best types of foods that we take with us out in the wilderness are going to be both nutrient dense, provide our bodies with a lot of nutrients, and as well as provide sufficient energy and, and will be energy dense. So these are going to be avocado, nuts, seeds, nut butters, trail mix, dried fruit, vegetable oils, again, are all great sources of both energy and nutrient dense foods. Now, the last point that is important to address when we're thinking about wilderness nutrition is to look at refeeding. If we are particularly in cases where we might be on a rescue mission or we're likely to encounter someone who's been chronically starved or severely malnourished from being out in the wilderness for a long period of time without sufficient nutrition, um, they are at risk for refeeding syndrome. Refeeding syndrome can be defined as a potentially um, fatal shift in the fluids and electrolytes that happens when these malnourished individuals um, receive nutrition again. And so these shifts can, um, these shifts do result from hormonal and metabolic changes that can cause serious clinical complications. The hallmark um, biochemical feature refeeding syndrome is hypophosphatemia or very low um, serum phosphate levels. Um, but we also see um, uh, dangerously low uh, levels of other electrolytes, including potassium, hypokalemia, um, and magnesium as well. And again, this results from the hormonal shifts that result from the rapid infusion of glucose particularly, which results in a rapid increase in insulin. Um, And so this rapid increase in insulin results in a decreased secretion of glucagon, um, which helps to stimulate glycogen, fat, and protein synthesis. This requires these minerals like phosphate, magnesium, potassium, and other cofactors like thiamine um, to be pulled up into the cell and results in very low serum levels. Um, So essentially, we have to be very careful and cautious with how we refeed these individuals to avoid these dangerously low um, uh, serum electrolyte levels. So there are a couple of ways to identify individuals who are at risk of refeeding syndrome, and here are some risk factors that the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, or NICE, has identified to identify these risk factors. Someone who's at risk of refeeding syndrome would meet one of the criteria. They have a BMI of less than 16. They have an unintentional weight loss of 15% in the last three to six months, or they've had little or no nutritional intake for more than 10 days, which is probably going to be the most likely candidate that we're going to see in the wilderness. Or if we can know for certain, which is unlikely, that they do have low levels of potassium, phosphorus, or magnesium before we reintroduce food. So it's most likely that person who's had little or no nutritional intake for more than 10 days. Someone who has two of the following risk factors would also be at risk for refeeding syndrome. That would be someone with a BMI of less than 18.5, unintentional weight loss of 10% over the last three to six months, or someone who's had little or no little or no nutritional intake for the past five days. Again, this is going to include um, be the most likely candidate that we're going to see out in the wilderness. It could also be someone with a history of alcohol abuse or drugs, including insulin, chemotherapy, antacids, or diuretics. So those are some of the risk factors that we can look for in any sort of um, rescue mission or just encountering individuals who have gone a long period of time without any nutritional intake. So some guidelines that we have um, in, in 
an approach to reintroduce nutrition would be as a general rule of thumb, um, don't let the person gorge on food. They're going to be very hungry. They're going to want to eat a lot at once. And it's our role or hopefully that we can provide that supportive um, role to help to prevent them from eating too much at once. So um, we also want to, if possible, to make sure that the patient's kidneys can process fluid by monitoring how frequently the patient is urinating. Um, In order to appropriately feed a patient, the individual should be assessing how long the patient has been without food or water, assess the length of transport to a medical facility, how long do you anticipate it'll be before they can be medically supervised? For short and extended lengths of transport, the patient hasn't has been without food or water for a shorter period of time for three to five days or less without significant weight loss, and they're at low risk for refeeding syndrome. The rescuer can offer small frequent feedings of normal food. Providing food will help the individual to become ambulatory, and as you can guess, an ambulatory patient is going to be easier to transport than a non-ambulatory patient. You can assess for dehydration and hypoglycemia and provide fluid and snacks that will help to address these concerns. Some good choices are going to include sports drinks, juices, soups, instant oatmeal, granola bars, banana chips, and small pieces of jerky. If the length of time to the medical facility is short, such as less than a few hours, and the patient has been without food for more than five days, and a medical history suggests significant weight loss indicating risk for refeeding syndrome, ideally you can administer 200 to 300 milligrams of oral or IV thiamine prior to any administration of food or dextrose solution. A multivitamin can be used if thiamine is not available, since it will include thiamine as well. If the patient is dehydrated and or hypoglycemic, restore fluid and blood glucose levels carefully with dilute Gatorade or similar sports drinks of low concentration of around 10% or less of IV dextrose. No other food needs to be administered until reaching the medical facility. Alert the medical facility of possible risk for refeeding syndrome. If you don't have thiamine or a way to monitor electrolytes, don't refeed the patient in the field. Wait until the hospital where electrolytes can be monitored and hospital staff can properly begin refeeding the patient. Now, if the length of time to a medical facility is extended beyond a few hours and the patient is at risk for refeeding syndrome, ideally administer 200 to 300 milligrams of oral or IV thiamine. Following thiamine, follow the above protocol for dehydration and hypoglycemia. So that was to administer foods and drinks such as sports drinks, juices, soups, instant oatmeal, granola bars, banana chips, small pieces of jerky, and other salty foods. Minimal food should be introduced as refeeding should primarily be conducted at the medical facility where electrolytes can be monitored. The guidelines specify that no more than 10 calories per kilogram of body weight per day. So if you think about for that 50 kilogram individual, that's going to be no more than 500 calories per day. For someone who's 100 kilograms, no more than 1,000 calories a day. And for the critically malnourished individual, no more than 5 calories per kilogram per day. High-fat, high-protein foods are generally well-tolerated since they are less likely to prompt an increase in insulin levels. 
If the length of time to a medical facility is extended beyond a few hours and the rescuer does not have thiamine or a multivitamin to give to the patient, avoid giving any food and if necessary, provide only the lowest dextrose concentration possible to treat hypoglycemia. Refeeding syndrome has been known to occur within a few hours in some individuals. So some conclusions from our Wilderness Nutrition Podcasts. As a wilderness enthusiast, you may travel and work in stressful physical environments such as the mountains or technical terrain, high altitude, and extreme temperatures. These environments can increase the need for sufficient nutrition. Unfortunately, stressful physical environments and crisis situations often coincide with decreased availability of foods and fluids. Planning nutrition needs along with fueling and hydrating properly for the wilderness rescue operations and wilderness adventures will allow you to maintain the concentration and physical stamina that's required for such wilderness activity. Also, you'll be able to evaluate nutritional concerns of patients and other fellow wilderness enthusiasts and follow appropriate protocols of nutrition intake, refeeding, and other medical situations where nutrition is an important concern. It's a great idea for any individual who is going to be heading out into the wilderness to have a 24-hour pack ready to go. Examples of nutrition, um, nutrition-related items that you might want to consider including would include adequate fluids and means of water purification, such as iodine tablets, a water filter, or UV water purification pen. If you'll be traveling in remote areas with the likelihood of an extended rescue mission or wilderness adventure, consider carrying a military ration such as the Meals Ready to Eat or MREs. They're lightweight, calorie dense, and can provide adequate nutrition for longer duration rescue operation or wilderness adventure. Other items to consider to consider including would be trail mix, nuts, seeds, chocolate, and granola, jerky, hard candies, honey packets or honey stingers, granola and sports bars, sports gels, thiamins, including oral tablets, multivitamins, single portions of sports drinks, and at the very least sports drinks powders, and glucose tabs. So this concludes part two of our Wilderness Nutrition Podcast. Um, I enjoyed getting to talk with you and thank you so much for listening.